the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, episode 100. You're listening to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, where we explore the real stories of real people who have discovered the profound healing properties of the cannabis plant in their own lives. Find more at CannabisHealsMe.com. Welcome back, everyone, for the 100th time to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. I don't know if you've picked up on it, but I'm a little excited that this is episode 100. Can you believe we've done 100 episodes? I can't. It is beyond imaginable. When I started this podcast back in October of 2018, I had no idea that we would get to 100 episodes. They say the average for most new podcasts is seven episodes. So I think we've beat that fairly soundly. But it still feels like I just started this podcast not that long ago. I'm still learning tons of things, but I feel like I've grown and learned over the past 100 episodes. And that was really the point of doing this podcast was to learn more about cannabis as medicine and then to give that information to whoever wants to listen. And what I sincerely hope is that I'm not just preaching to the choir. I hope that this podcast is reaching people that are of the mindset that cannabis is not medicine, that it is just about getting high. And I hope that we have been able over the past 100 episodes to change people's minds about cannabis as medicine and maybe put them on the path to liberty. Now, it's episode 100, so I'm going to give you guys a break. I'm not going to ask you to go out and subscribe to the podcast. I'm not going to ask you to go out and rate or review the podcast because that's a free way for us to get the podcast out to people who don't already listen to the podcast. I'm not going to ask you to go out and subscribe to our email newsletter at CannabisHillsMe.com slash subscribe. I'm not going to ask you to go out and check out our Patreon at Patreon.com slash podcast. And I'm not even going to ask you to tell three people about the podcast because this is episode 100. I want it to be different than all the other podcasts that I've done so far. Well, not completely and totally different, but just different enough that you notice that this is something cool and something special. What I am going to do, though, is take a little trip back down memory lane. So bear with me for a few minutes while I recall a story for you. I was taking a government class in college. Now, at the time, I thought it was one of the most boring classes I had to take because it was a required course. The professor himself wasn't necessarily boring, but I didn't want to be there because I thought it was stupid that I had to take a government class because it had nothing to do with my major in accounting. So I found myself nodding off in this class a lot more than I care to admit, which wasn't fair to the professor because he was really a nice guy. One day during class, the professor was talking about the Constitution. I think he may have been talking about the ratification process and how much debate there was around getting all the separate states to ratify the document. And he made this comment offhand that pierced through my grogginess, and it stuck with me to this day, like almost 20 years after the fact. He said that the Bill of Rights was written to keep the government from screwing us. What? I had never even considered that the U.S. government would try to screw its citizens. Now, I'll admit I was very naive back then because it had never occurred to me that one's own government, and in particular the U.S. government, 
might do something so counter to what I'd been told about this great nation. Now, keep in mind that I was having this internal dialogue with myself just a few years after the fiascos of Ruby Ridge and Waco. And if you haven't done more research on those two events, I implore you to do so. So I was totally living in a bubble and didn't make the connection that, yes, the U.S. government sometimes kind of screws people over. Now, looking back, I really wish I'd paid more attention in that class. Maybe I would have come around to my current beliefs in liberty a lot sooner. But unfortunately, like so many Americans today, I fell right back into my stupor and slumber and continued to meander through life buying every lie the federal government ever peddled. I believed in federal supremacy. I believed that our rights come from that hallowed document, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Now, I could quote the Declaration of Independence with its beautiful prose about being born with certain inalienable rights, but I didn't really take those words to heart, not until many, many years later, which is why it was so easy for me to believe that the government has the authority to decide what people can put into their own bodies. That's why I was justified in feeling that people who trade in those things with which I don't personally agree should be thrown in cages. My lack of understanding the principle of natural rights and the basis for natural common law was how the government was able to convince me for more than 40 years that the laws written by politicians and bureaucrats was holy, just, and wise. And those that disagreed with our judicious overlords, well, they were just immoral backwards people. Good Lord, I had it wrong. Now, because of those past beliefs, of which I'm terribly ashamed, I've made it my mission to try and educate my son on the principles of natural rights, respecting private property, and not sticking our noses into other people's business. So I bought a set of books that have been recommended to me, the Uncle Eric series, because my son is of an age that I can start explaining some of these concepts to him more explicitly. So today, I am really excited to introduce to you the author of that book series and a man who has published more than 2 million words and given more than 500 interviews on the concepts of liberty, natural rights, personal responsibility, and free markets, Mr. Richard J. Mayberry. Rick, welcome to the program. Thank you. I, I enjoy being here. I appreciate it. And thank you for uh, doing the work that you do. There are not very many people in the United States that really get a chance to hear anything other than the, the mainstream press, which is uh, only one point of view. Right. So thank, thank you for the work you do. I appreciate it personally. Absolutely. No, I, I'm, well, I used to be a conservative, so my hope is that I'm able to reach conservatives who feel the same way that I used to feel, that we should put people in cages over plants and maybe change their mind along the way. Mm-hmm. I am a homeschool mom, which most folks that listen to the show know. And one of the things I did over the summer is I bought a series of books called the Uncle Eric series of books. And you are the author of that book series, which is great. I'm, I'm, I'm reading through them before I work through them with my son just to kind of get myself familiar with them. One of the books, the first book I started with, which I know I started out of order, <laughs> But I, I wanted to do, I wanted to learn more about natural law. And one of the things that I wanted to do to teach my son is about natural law, because I was always raised in a political law home where it's, if it's the law, if it's wrong, it's immoral. And so I wanted to, since I've, I've changed my 
perspective on things, I wanted to make sure that I raised my son to understand the difference between natural law and political law. And that's one of the reasons why I skipped to this book is because the title, Whatever Happened to Justice, just seemed to scream, this book is going to be about natural law. Mm -hmm. I have long felt that, uh, well, I should point out, I've I've had more than two million words published. Wow. Whatever whatever happened to justice is what I feel like I was put on earth to do. I just always had that feeling that it was some special mission that I had to to revive the understanding of the difference between political law and natural law. And and so I just wanted to point that out. That that's the subject that's most dear to my heart. Well, that's great. Then you're the perfect person for me to speak to about this. Okay. And like I said, I don't really have a bunch of questions. I'm hoping we can just kind of have a conversation and, you know, and as mm-hmm. as things come up, I'll I'll ping them off of you. Cuz if I if okay. I have a list of questions, I get real worried about getting all my questions answered and not really listening <laughs> to my guest. And and so I like to be more in the moment. Now, I'll hang up and I'll think, "Oh, man, I should have asked him so and so." But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth the loss there. Well, I wanted if you wondered if you would just explain to our listeners what the difference is between natural law versus political law. Okay, very simply, um, political law is made-up law. Um, There are people who have power, uh, political power, and they make up laws uh, according to whatever they think ought to be the law. Yes. Um, And and natural law, which... um, was mostly manifested in the form of what's called common law. The old British common mm-hmm. law was, in my opinion, the best legal system the world ever saw. And common law, or natural law, uh, assumes that you are born with your rights to your life, life, liberty, and property. They are granted to you by your creator whatever your creator might be, uh, or however you might envision it, that's where your rights come from, your legal rights. Uh, and the Declaration of Independence, you know, Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal and, and endowed by their creator with certain rights. Mm-hmm. So the assumption that, that common law is based on is that you're born with your rights, and, this, and the legislature simply can't do anything about it. You've got them. Your creator gave them to you. And what these people in Washington think about it is pretty much irrelevant. Um, the, the natural law or common law boils down to 17 words. And they are, uh, do all you have agreed to do and do not encroach on other persons or their property. That's 17 mm-hmm. words. And again, do all you have agreed to do and do not encroach on other persons or their property. Now, the first part of that is the foundation of contract law. And the second part of it is the, the foundation of tort law and some criminal law. And that is what that, those 17 words are what make civilization possible. When the people are, are obeying those two laws, when, when obedience is widespread, you get economic progress. Life keeps getting better year after year for pr- practically everybody. When you have widespread violation of those 
two laws, those 17 words, then life starts getting worse. And, you know, this is all explained in whatever happened to justice. Um, and, and what happened was we had this, this wonderful common law system that evolved through the decisions of judges century after century, hearing cases and making decisions based on those 17 words. And that's the whole body of common law developed up from that. The word common law, or the, the phrase common law, means the law common to all. Regardless of what your religion is, it teaches those two laws. Mm-hmm. That's a really important point. Uh, we're not talking about um, any particular religion's viewpoint on right and wrong. We're talking about the 17 words that they all teach. That was one of the things that surprised me, is that this is a common theme. Because I'm a Christian, and I don't know that much about other religions, other than what mm. I've heard through the years. Right. I, I have uh, actually... One of the most gratifying things to me is that I wrote that book in, I think it was 1992, and I thought sure that I was going to to get a lot of uh, a disagreement from people of various religions and from lawyers and from judges and all, and I never have. Uh, I, it's amazing to me. Um, the common, comment that I hear most often is that Everybody believes in those two laws, in those 17 words, no matter what their background is. They all believe in it. Where the problem comes from is is that these politicians make up new laws that violate those two laws of civilization. And, and then, you know, the more of these made-up laws that we get, the more chaos we get in our society because people lose track of what's right and what's wrong to the point that we're now, it's just generally taught in the public schools that right and wrong are just matters of opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't remember in my days in high school or school any, I mean, I went to public and private school and I don't remember ever hearing someone teach me about the concept of common law or natural law. It was always political law. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, the, now, where that came from, uh, it, it wasn't always that way. If you uh, get hold of some McGuffey's readers, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, most of the, the American population in the 19th century was taught from McGuffey's readers, and they contained the principles that are built upward from common law. Is built upward from the 17 words. And so the whole population got that, that learning back there in the 1800s. But at the uh, end of that century, around, you know, let's say around the neighborhood of 1890, 1910, in there, the uh, socialists became very popular and became, became very influential all over the world, and, and that spread throughout the 20th century through all through the world until it's been pretty much adopted in every country. And what socialism teaches is that there's a bunch of experts that should run everything, should control your life, your business, your income, <laughs> you know, should control everything. Yeah. And, and so socialism violates the part of the 17 words that says 
do not encroach on other persons or their property. And and so the socialists launched a, a covert but very effective attack on the old common law system, on the old natural law. And to the point that, as you say, you know, uh, by let's say 1950 or so, um, there was nothing taught anymore about the original legal system that America had and that a lot of the rest of the world had, the old common law or natural law system. These socialists just wiped it out mm-hmm. because they wanted this legalized privilege of controlling everybody's economic lives. Uh, and that's where we are today. The, the idea that there is built into us, you know, my personal view is those two laws are built into our DNA. They, they work for us, just like flying works for a bird and running works for a, a wolf. Um, those two laws work for us, for humans. They are what enable us to prosper. Now, a real important point is that, uh, let's say, swimming works for a fish, but the fish does have the option to not swim. The wolf has the option to not run. Yeah. And the bird has the option to not fly, but they will not prosper. Mm-hmm. They'll probably die. And it's the same with us. These 17 words are what works for us. And we've got the option to not obey them, but life is going to get worse. And that's what you see around the world. A, a really good example is Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Uh, they threw out the idea of natural law a long time ago and went totally to socialism here in the last 20 years or so. And, uh, you, you know, everybody reads the newspaper, you know, the Venezuelan is a wreck. Yeah. Uh, now, they went on the rocks faster than most countries do, but everybody who enable, who allows politicians to make up laws that violate the 17 words they eventually pay a very big price. And I think that's the direction America is headed, unfortunately. Yeah, well, one of the book, one of the points that you made in the book is that the more government and the more political law that we have, the more poverty we get. And I, yeah. I think we kind of see that these days because there's a growing gap between the people that make the most money versus the people that make the least money, or at least that's the way it seems in today's society. And we, our government sure takes a lot of our money and spends it on the war on drugs, the war on terror, and whatever else they want to throw money in a fire for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's um, well, I don't, I don't know what to to say. <laughs> you said it. It's very true. Uh, the one of the worst things that goes on is that a person gets political power and starts, you know cooperating with other politicians, other power junkies, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to make up more and more laws. And they just make it impossible for businesses to operate. And you see this all over the world. The more laws they have, the less businesses can operate, and the more business go out of business, and their people are unemployed. And, and you get this, this gap between people who have political connections and those who don't have political connections. Mm-hmm. If you've got political connections, then they will make up all sorts of laws to uh, enable you to accumulate a lot more money than you probably ought to. And um, 
if you don't have political connections, then you are the person that is robbed in order to subsidize those who do have political connections. Right. And, and you know, you know, that's just really common all over the world, um, that the people with uh, political connections get laws made up that, uh, that help them. And everybody else is robbed in order in order to subsidize that. I guess my question is 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 how do we get back to more of a, a common law stance? I mean, I guess maybe educating people is is a, a big step towards it. But you know, it, it it's you know I used to call myself a conservative, and I was very conservative when it came to spending on certain programs and very not conservative when it came to spending on other programs. So it's like the people that say they're conservatives are, are really only conservative on their, their pet issue. But if it means that they want to throw somebody in a cage over a plant, then, you know, hey, let's do it and let's fund it through the force of government. So how do we get back to our roots? How do we get back to common law at this point? Well, uh you remember, as we started this show, I was congratulating you on, on doing a good job of, and what, and what I was actually saying was, you are part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody has to um, learn that there is another kind of legal system other than political law, and it's a better legal system. And, and so, you know, the more we put that message out there, the more people will go in search of that better system. And once they understand it, I think there will be no problem in, in people switching or demanding a switch to common law. Now, let me let me point out, um, there's nobody who's a, a greater admirer of the American founders than I am, but they weren't perfect. Right. They were human. They made mistakes. One of the mistakes was pointed out by Patrick Henry. And that is that the Constitution says that the Constitution is the highest law of the land. And Patrick Henry pointed out, you know, we can't put that in there because if we do, that makes this made-up law superior to the old common law. Mm -hmm. And it will eventually destroy the common law. And sure enough, you know, um, more than 100 years later, the socialists came along, and they used that clause to essentially remove the common law from American society. Um, it was a loophole that, that the socialists discovered, and boy, did they use it. Well, we've got to um, spread the word that there is a higher law than any, than any human law. And that's a very important point. That was a key yes. point. In the American Revolution, there is a higher law than any human law, and it's the the job of a court to find that higher law and to apply it in the cases brought before the court. That was the whole American system there. The judge is supposed to find the higher law and enforce it in any any decisions brought before him. But that people are are not taught that anymore. It's just been flushed down the memory hole. And, uh, you know, you are part of the problem, and I hope that your listeners will go out and they will become, I'm sorry, you're part of the solution. (laughs) Sorry about that. I've been called the problem Um, before, so no biggie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm probably proud of it, too. (laughs) In a lot of times, (laughs) the cases, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 
But that's the, that's the thing. We, you know, you can't convert the country back to what it ought to be uh, until people are aware of what it ought to be. And and so you've got to revive this this understanding that there used to be a higher law than any human law, and uh, people have got to start wanting that. That's so important. And so you know, I congratulate you again for being part of the solution. <laughs> well, thank you. I thought that that's an interesting point about the Constitution, you know, claiming that it itself is the highest law of the land. And Patrick Henry was absolutely right to point out that problem. But now our judicial system isn't even constrained by the Constitution itself. So they've taken it and run with it and said, well, if common law is not the highest, then let's just try to exploit the Constitution to the most that we can, to the greatest extent we can. My two favorite parts of the Constitution are the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. They're very short, very easy to understand. I urge everybody to go out and get a copy of the Constitution and read the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. And what they say together is that the federal government is allowed to do only what is stated in the Constitution. And what's been been twisted so much is is the understanding of that. The, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments have, eventually, have been essentially erased by the Supreme Court, which leaned, leaned socialist for a long time. Um, and uh, you've got instead this assumption that the government can do anything it wants unless it's specifically banned by the Constitution. Right, when it's the opposite. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but most people don't even realize that. I think one of the things that irks me the most now is to hear people go on TV or, you know, wherever they are, just people talking, and they talk about their Second Amendment right. It's like, no, you don't have a Second Amendment right. You have a natural right to these Mm -hmm. things, and the Second Amendment is supposed to protect that. Yes, that's that's very well said. I, I think you're exactly right there. Um, there is this assumption too, you know, that um, the the only rights we have are the ones in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. If they if they can't if the Supreme Court can't find a right in the Constitution, then we don't have it. And it was Alexander Hamilton that warned against that. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, do not make this assumption that the Constitution grants rights because we'll wind up exactly where we've wound up. We don't have any rights, right. essentially. You know? Yeah, so it's really fascinating to me. I, I, uh, uh, I really urge everybody to, to read the words of the American founders and do not read books about the founders. Read, you know, read their actual words. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's, they're very enlightening, especially Jefferson. Um, he wrote so well and so clearly, and he's got so many great um, statements, just single lines that are just so good. Uh, and I, I really urge everybody to, to read their actual words. Don't let somebody interpret those words for you. You read them yourself and see what they mean. Same thing with the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Read the actual document and it was written for you. They they did not 
you know, both of those documents, they're not a, a lot of legalese. It takes a lawyer to interpret them. They're very clear. They're written for the ordinary person to be able to understand the way the government is supposed to behave. Yeah, it is pretty straightforward. And if you go and try and read a law these days, the budget laws that they pass are thousands of pages long. And the representatives themselves sometimes only have like two or three days before they pass thousands of pages worth of legislation. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Well, what's uh, equally crazy uh, is that Congress uh, just makes up so many laws that that now uh, the federal government has more than, and try to grasp this, the federal government has more than 300,000 laws. Wow. And ignorance of the law is no excuse. Right. It's, it's your duty to read every one of those and know which one of them applies to you. And it's so insane um, that uh, there was a book written uh, some years ago uh, called Three Felonies a Day. And the, the gentleman that wrote it pointed out his, his whole case is, is showing that the average American commits three felonies per day because we don't even know we're we're breaking these laws uh it's just a it's a case where if if they want to arrest you and throw you in prison they can do it Mm -hmm. because you're breaking three felonies or breaking you're you're committing three felonies every day breaking these laws yeah three hundred thousand laws and that's just federal laws that doesn't include your state and county and city and whatever else that's right that's right I, I would imagine that if you count all of the laws, it, it probably runs up against a million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're supposed to know all of those at all times and never break any of them. Right. I wanted to go back to what you said about a judge's job. You know, if back in the day when we were under the common law, what a, a judge, he would he would weigh everything against common law versus did they break this political law? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's just, I mean, and I guess it's in some part because of the way the Constitution was written as setting itself up as the supreme law of the land rather than common law. You're right. I think that's one of the main things that I really disagree with I, um, with these originalist uh, Supreme Court justices. I mean, they're a whole lot better than the socialists. But nevertheless, they they consider the Constitution to be the source of, of your rights to your life, liberty, and property. I'm entirely confident saying none of the American founders meant to write it that way. They really, they did not mean that. That's what the, the Supreme Court does. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Constitution because it does such a good job of of uh, if it were enforced, yeah, it it would do such a good job of paralyzing the government. There's hardly anything the government would be able to do if it really did follow the Constitution, because the Constitution is this long list of procedures and checks and balances. If it's a really interesting exercise, try sometime to read the Constitution 
and think to yourself, if you were running any private organization, any business, any church, charity, fraternal organization, any other type of organization, according to the U.S. Constitution, what would it be like? And it would be absolute hell, because if you follow the rules of the Constitution, every decision you make is going to take years, and it's going to be nothing but one argument after another, going back and forth between the House and the Senate and trying to obey all these checks and balances. The, the founders were really, really clever in writing the Constitution in the sense that they, they knew that if they didn't set up a government, somebody else would. Mm-hmm. So they set up their own, and then they crippled it. So that it, no matter who got control of it, he couldn't do much damage. And that Constitution, that's the purpose of the thing, is to make sure the government can't hurt us. Well, you know, it's, it's become a whole different thing. It's like it's become the source of all law. Um, pretty much everything that the Constitution or that the Congress does is assumed to be uh, downstream from the Constitution, and that's what the way these judges go at it is. They're they're trying to figure out how any given law is downstream from the Constitution. And uh, if they can't see it, then it's ruled unconstitutional. And if they can see it, then it's okay. But it's not, in a lot of a lot of cases, you know, three hundred thousand of them probably, it's not it's not okay. Um, but the whole system has just been warped by this this tremendous dedication to socialism that's taught in the schools. The the kids aren't told what's being done to them. The parents aren't told what's being done to them, but the schools teach socialism. And everything that goes on in the legal system is worked to agree with socialism, with the government should control everything. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's crazy that the folks that that are so upset, you know, they're like, oh, we've got this big disparity between the richest and the poorest. And the government should do more about that, when really the government is the root cause of that problem. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you uh, sound as if you're pretty familiar with the Austrian School of Economics. I am sort of familiar. I, economics is not my strong suit. I'm trying to learn more about it. I was listening to a podcast the other day with Jeff Dice was on there, and Basically, he made the statement that, you know, economics is the root of all knowledge or something. I can't. It was a great line. And of course, I can't remember what it is because I have a two second memory. And so I'm like, OK, I've got to dedicate myself to economics a little better than what <laughs> than what I have been. So I'm familiar with the Mises, the Austrian school and the Mises Institute, but I'm not well versed in it. No. Well, you're a whole lot well, more well-versed than most people are, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> the bar's pretty low, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, again, I mean, the, the kids in school and college, you know, nobody tells them that there's an alternative view to the socialist view. They're just taught the socialist view, and they're, set, they're taught, well, this is economics. You know? yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's all there is. This is economics. And it's really crazy. There are 
several schools of economics, and the, and the two that are really most in competition with each other these days are uh, the socialist or, and variations of it, and what's called the Austrian school, mm-hmm. because its founders were from Austria. And the Austrian school, and uh, some of the leading lights there are Frederick Hayek, uh, who won the Nobel Prize, and Ludwig von, Ludwig von Mises, who was his, his mentor, and Murray Rothbard, and uh, there are some others. The Austrian school is the one that most respects common law or natural law, and that is most in keeping with the original American philosophy, and that believes that your economic life is your business and other people should not be allowed to be controlling everything you do. It is, it does, you're right. It does respect the common law a lot more than others because it seems like all the other ways of looking at economics, it's like, well, if we just tinker with this, if we just tinker with that, Mm -hmm. then, and then all their tinkering does is just makes things worse and we get bigger bubbles and bigger crashes. Yep. That's exactly right. And the, and the reason is that um, all the other uh, forms of economics or schools of thought in economics uh, see the economy as a machine. They talk about uh, fine-tuning it and speeding it up and slowing it down. And uh, all of this policy that is made in Washington by the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and all, uh, that's all based on this assumption that the economy is a machine. Well, the economy is not a machine. The economy is human beings, people. And every one of them is different. He's a different individual with different needs, wants, and desires. And those people in Washington don't know anything about us. They don't even know our names, much less right. what what your individual needs, wants, and desires are. Mm-hmm. And, and yet they stand up there and they, they make these these crazy systems that they think are going to make the economy better and what they do essentially is you know it's it's actually Washington's a big machine for manufacturing monkey wrenches and those <laughs> people just throw monkey wrenches into everything according to what they think you and I should be doing with our lives <laughs> I mean, yes it is, it is just absolutely insane uh, but they they are taught that if they're elected by the people, then they must know what they're doing, and that, that they therefore are entitled to meddle in our lives. It's, it's oh god, it's just awful. <laughs> they're like, oh, I got elected to this office, so I've got to somehow justify my presence here mm-hmm. by creating all these laws and spending lots of your money. So it's exactly. like they're just in a race to to give away the most stuff that is not theirs and yep. is not the federal government's. Everything the federal government has came comes from us. <laughs> that's that's really true. The go- governments have no money of their own. All they have is what they take from others. Oh, and borrow from China. <laughs> yeah, I know there's that too. Yeah, boy, them them borrowing. Um, I mean, that's another whole subject you could talk for a whole day on. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Twenty twenty three trillion dollars. That's nuts to me. And 
you know, and then you could and then you could say, well, how can they do this? Well, then we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> but you know, and then you know they just print money, and and one of the the big things, of course, the war on terror is probably one of the biggest things they print money for, but the war on drugs, they've printed a lot of money for that. And mm-hmm. use prohibition laws as justification for putting people in cages and ruining lives. Yeah, and when yeah. you when you I talk to other conservatives because I, I live in East Texas, so uh, it's 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 pretty conservative around these parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I I try and talk to people about ending the drug war or you know just flat out legalizing cannabis again, I mean it it you know it didn't used to be illegal mm-hmm. eighty five years ago. But now it is. And you tell them, hey, it ought to be legalized. And you have to break out the smelling salts because they get the vapors. <laughs> and it's always, you know, their their cry is always, oh, the children. What about the children? And so you made an excellent point in your book, Whatever Happened to Justice, about the concept, the common law principle of contract voidability. So I wanted to see if you might want to tell my listeners what that is and and how that would impact or could impact the selling of drugs to underage kids. Okay, yeah. Uh, And it it does not just apply to marijuana and these Mm -hmm. other illegal drugs. It applies to cigarettes and alcohol, whatever. Um, Under common law, uh, and, and most state laws even today, uh, of minors' contracts are voidable. Now, it doesn't mean they're void, but they're voidable. The, the minor is held to be not capable of exercising good judgment in making a contract, and so the minor is allowed to back out of the contract. Mm-hmm. And, and it used to be that merchants understood this, and um, if they wanted to make a business deal, or just just sell a minor something, you know, a box of cornflakes. Um, they understood that the minor could walk back in there and demand his money back, even if he already ate the corn the cornflakes, mm-hmm. uh, because his contracts are voidable by him. Uh, and so a merchant knew he was taking a risk by selling something to a minor. Well, you apply that now to things like cigarettes, alcohol, marijuana, and so on. A minor can just walk, could just, if these things were legal, or, yeah, a minor could just walk in, buy it, walk out, throw it away, walk back in and say, give me my money back, and the merchant is required to do so. So imagine somebody selling marijuana to kids. Mm-hmm. You know, just uh, it will only take a few incidents of a kid walking in and buying it and then walk, <laughs> coming back and demanding a refund. And that mer- merchant is going to really quickly understand he better make sure that he's selling only to people who are not minors. Um, and, and so you have right there in common law a, a very easy solution to this whole problem of, of kids getting their hands on drugs and all. But right. it won't work as long as the drugs are illegal because it's mm-hmm. all underground then. It's all secretive, and uh, the courts aren't going to pay attention to it, and the police aren't going to pay attention to it. They, well, they aren't going to pay attention because they won't know about it. Right. It's not sold out of the local grocery store. So um, it's making the stuff hidden 
that prevents the common law solution. And all you have to do is is uh, is just you know go ahead and start publicizing that these drugs are going to be legal, but uh, minors' contracts are voidable, so merchants had better look out. Um, and you know, yeah, because the kids are going to be like, oh yeah, I can go smoke this and then go get my money back. Yep, yep, right, exactly. And it, it would I would imagine it would take a few weeks for the word to get around among the merchants. Yes. That, you, know, you better not sell to a minor if you're selling this stuff. Yeah, well, you know, and the crazy thing is, is in the states that have legalized, there's not been any evidence that use among teens has gone up. And I think even in some states it's declined because now it's not the forbidden fruit. Your mom is sitting on the back steps doing it, so it's not quite as enticing anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If my, if my parents are doing it, then it can't be very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's why everybody's, all the all the youngsters are off yeah. of Facebook now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Let me, let me point out, since we're talking about marijuana, um, yeah. I live uh, in a state where it's legal, and... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 73, and I've got pretty bad arthritis. And I've been, uh, last till two or three months, I've been uh, using the um, CBC that's extracted from the marijuana, and it is a miracle. I cannot believe how much better my life is because I'm able to get that marijuana. Um, and it's, it doesn't, uh, you know, if you go with the CBC, it doesn't make you high or anything mm-hmm. like that. It just uh, kills the pain of the mer- of the arthritis, and it, it it has really transformed my life. And I recommend it to everybody that I know who has arthritis. Well, your your age group is one of the growing demographics for cannabis use, which is you know, it's crazy to think that. Uh, because I can't imagine, you know, my dad is 70. I can't imagine him using cannabis for anything because that's <laughs> the devil's lettuce, you know. Yeah. Right. But it is one of the most, one of the grow, growing areas because it, it it's great for pain relief in a lot of instances. Yeah. And then, you know, what's, what's sad is that in Texas, until this last legislative session earlier this year, CBD oil was still illegal, technically illegal in the state of Texas. And there was a district attorney in Tarrant County, which is up in the DFW area, that was putting people in jail and threatening felony charges over CBD oil, which has no psychoactive or, you know, no, not enough of a psychoactive component to, to cause any mm-hmm. effect. Mm-hmm. And and all of because of this political law. Well, it's the and that's the trope that they all repeat. Well, it's the law, and I have to enforce it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a law enforcement officer, so if it's on the books, I've got to enforce it. And that's just the most that's the most disgusting excuse yep. that I think law enforcement clings to. Well, it's the law; I have to enforce it. And it's like you have a higher law that you should consider, which is you know, like you said, common law and natural law. That is a much higher law than something some bureaucrat or some politician passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we need to have a revival of the understanding of what happened in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Because that was the excuse. Um, you know, it's uh, locking up these people in concentration camps is a good idea because the law says so. I'm enforcing the law. And... Uh, 
in the United States, you go back to the 1800s, uh, that was, you know, the massacre of the Indians was because, well, that's what the law says we're supposed to do, so we're going to do it. Uh, this idea that the political law is a guide to right and wrong is insane, absolutely insane. Yes. Political laws are very, very often used to hurt innocent people. And this idea that, that a police officer or, or whoever, a, a judge, whoever, says, well, I'm following the law, so I'm okay. That's ridiculous. And, and um, I think, yeah, in, in whatever happened to justice, I point out one of the most important legal decisions, in my opinion, in the history of the world was the Nuremberg decision right after World yes. War II. When the Nazis said uh, we're innocent because we were just following orders, mm-hmm. and uh, the judges say no, there is a higher duty than anything our governments can impose on us, and you did not meet that higher duty, and so you know they were hung, um, and uh, you know everybody should be reminded of that. Uh, there is a higher law than any government's mm-hmm. law, and you'd better obey that higher law. Yeah, and that's the, I guess it's just intellectual laziness, or maybe it's just propaganda our whole life, that that's kind of the default. Well, this is the law, so this is what we have to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they completely forget about that decision the Nuremberg decision, where it's like, no, you've got a, a higher power, so you don't just blindly follow the law. You also have to to consider this higher power that says we don't throw people in cages over plants, or we don't put people in gas chambers and kill them that way either. Yeah, um, I every once in a while, um, I'll run into some bureaucrat who's telling me he's doing something to me because he's just following the law. Mm-hmm. And... and uh, I'll say, you know, where have I heard that before? <laughs> and, and they never know what I'm talking about. The, right. The, the memory of Nuremberg has been erased, uh, I think, on purpose. Yeah, especially that part. But the part that gives them justification to build empires around the world, they totally remember that part. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. We, we won't get started on foreign policy. <laughs> Well, we can if you want. <laughs> no, mean, we don't have time for that. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> and I'd probably lose half my listenership. <laughs> uh, I try to save. I have. I have talked about. I mean, I talk about whatever I want to because this is my podcast. But uh, I try not to get too far too political because it's not necessarily a political podcast. But a lot of these concepts and ideas are political in nature because our government has made them political. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, we, we won't talk about foreign policy today, but let me, <laughs> let me dangle something in front of you here, just a little bait. Okay. Um, I have uh, real-world experience in that area. When uh, I was, In the 1960s, I was drafted, and I wound up in mm-hmm. the Air Force in a special operations squadron, and I was involved in Central America in the the wars that the federal government had going down there at that time. And I saw U.S. foreign policy up close and personal. I was yeah, one of the I bet. people helping to enforce it. And I found out that what the federal government does in other countries, Americans 
would be just absolutely appalled at if they understood, right. if they knew about it. They don't know that I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. I was part of it. And it's, it is way, way worse than anything they do inside the U.S. They want yeah. to build empire all over the world, even though that's not what they call it. They call it spreading mm-hmm. democracy. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Who, are, who are we to tell people who live in the desert how they should live? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I know what you mean. Again, I, I saw it with my own eyes, this, this idea that American politicians are qualified to tell other countries what kind of governments they should have. Oh, my God. I mean, that's just so insane. Well, you know, I, I, I have, I'm much more skeptical now than I was, say, four years ago. I was a conservative my whole life and kind of held to that ideology and during the election, the last election cycle for the president, my eyes just kind of got open. And I'm like, oh, this is not everything that I've been told it was. And I'm just, I have a much more skeptical take on most anything. And, and kind of my, my reasoning goes back. It's like, look, if a government who's lied to us for 80 years about a plant, <laughs> how in the world, if they're lying to us for 80 years about a plant, how can we trust them? in anything else that they tell us. And I'm not necessarily a conspiracy theorist, but my initial reaction nowadays is one of skepticism and thinking they're full of bull. And 90% of the time they are, maybe even closer to 99%. I'd go for 99. (laughs) Every now and then they slip up and tell the truth on accident, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody makes mistakes, you know? (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. Broken clock. <laughs> I love this book, and I can't wait to to talk to my son about this and teach him the principles in this, and then and then look at the other Uncle Eric books and and go through that series with him. It's it's just an excellent series. If if anybody wants to know more about these concepts, the way you lay it out is I wouldn't say simple, but easy to understand. You take very complex topics and break them down into to things that laymen can understand without having to have a legal degree. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a nice compliment. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, th- I think you've done an excellent job. I Oh, I did want to ask you one question because I, I a friend of mine who had actually recommended the Uncle Eric books to me I asked her, I said, I'm going to interview Richard Mayberry. Do you have any questions that you'd like to ask? She said, I've got one question. And she wanted me to ask you that if you were writing your books today, is there anything that you would put differently in the books? Or would you change any, you know, was there one thing you're looking back and you're like, oh, I wish I'd done that a little differently? Um, well, um, I'm, I'm sure the answer to that is yes, but I'd have to. <laughs> have to page through them one at a time, you know, and, and, uh, and read what I've written in the past. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to think right off of the top of my head, uh, but I, I can't really. The one thing that, I, that comes to mind, uh, which does not answer your question, but is along those lines, is, um, you know, because the federal government is getting more deeply into these foreign wars all the time, mm-hmm. I do run into more and more people who are afraid their son or daughter is going to be drafted. And they do not want their kids sent overseas to die in some crazy foreign war that nobody really understands. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, they're afraid 
that some uh, recruiter or uh, draft board, who knows, is going to appeal to the child's patriotism yes. and talk them into allowing themselves to be drafted or even to sign up. And these, these parents are really, really worried. And if I were them, I would be worried too. And, and the, uh, the vaccine, I think, for that uh, is the Uncle Eric book on World War II. And I would just urge everybody to have your child read the book on World War II. Okay. So, you know, because what's behind all of this patriotism about marching off to war without really understanding what the war is about is the propaganda from World War II. Um, Americans have just been deluged with the propaganda from World War II and without any presentation of, of the other side of the story. Right. And so that's, that's what the Uncle Eric books, all of them really do, give you the other side of the story to the government side. Um, and the World War II book is essentially, you know, this is what really happened. This is not the propaganda you see mm-hmm. in the movies and in the books and all that. This is what really happened. And I, I go through the whole thing and give you the facts about, you know, <laughs> how many tanks were produced and how many airplanes. And, and was it really necessary for the U.S. to get into this war? And once you understand how the propaganda worked, um, then you're going to have a lot more skepticism about marching off to war in some foreign place. No, I think that's great because that's that's one of my concerns. I have a son, mm. and they all love explosions and guns. And <laughs> yeah, right. So my my yes. greatest goal in life is is to make sure that that he doesn't get drawn on a career path, and that his his natural tendency to want to protect and do good and keep people safe is not exploited by the federal government or any other form of the government to put him to work doing things that are going to violate his conscience and violate the Christian principles that we live by. And so that's that's probably one of my greatest fears is as a mother is that he's going to be, you know, manipulated by a recruiter or, you know, drafted or whatever. I, I don't worry about the draft too much right now, but World War Three isn't quite, quite yet upon us. But that's one of the things I do worry about. So I'm, I'm excited to know that about the book. I have it. And so that is certainly one that we will spend a good quality amount of time in. <laughs> good. Very good. Very good. I've had a great conversation with you today, and, and I'd love to talk to you again if I can. Okay. Oh, I enjoyed it, um, and you're uh, you're a good interviewer. Thank you very much. You made my job easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a work in process. I'm 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 better now than I was, you know, a year ago. But I I, I mostly just like to talk to people, so that helps too. Well, you know uh, about the cannabis thing. Um, you know, as you pointed out, the government has lied about it since for 85 years. Yeah, you could just do uh, an interview with me or somebody else. Uh-huh. Um, talking about the way the government lies. Well, that sounds great to me. I'm all for that because uh, mm-hmm. I'm all about talking about how the government lies. So, yeah, maybe we'll do that on a follow-up episode and we'll talk about okay. some of the ways that government lies to us. I mean, it, an hour is probably not enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thanks again, Richard. This has been great. Yeah, I've, great. I've learned a lot and I hope the listeners do as well. And if, if they didn't, then that's their tough luck because I loved it. <laughs> I know, so thank you. Thank you. 
It was good talking with you, Rachel. Yes, sir. And tell Samantha I've very much enjoyed uh, emailing back and forth with her. Right. Yes, I, I, I will do that. Okay. Uh, oh, by the way, can I can I give uh, our 800 number? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I forgot. I got, like, totally sidetracked. Yes, uh, whatever websites, whatever, you know, social media, whatever you would like to plug. I apologize. I, I didn't open up the floor to you for that. Okay. So whatever you want to plug, plug away. Well, you can uh, get the the Uncle Eric book. Mm-hmm. There's 11 books, and you can get them all uh, at our website. And also, um, we publish a financial newsletter that's based heavily on geopolitics and economics. Um, and um, that's available on the website, too. And the, the phone number, if you want to call, is 800-509-5400. And uh, the website is richardmayberry.com. Well, that's easy enough. And that's M-A-Y-B-U-R-Y, right? That's correct. But you can misspell it and it'll still find me. Oh, that was very smart of you to get that domain. (laughs) Very ingenious. Well, I will put a link to that in the show notes page. Is there anything else that you would recommend to people if they want to learn more about these concepts of natural rights and liberty or is there anything else that you might recommend to our to the listeners um i think probably if you'd uh, look up uh, the books of uh, murray rothbard uh-huh um that's a you know he he was a good writer he's, he's dead now but he was a good writer mm-hmm. who wrote on the subject of liberty a lot and uh i learned a lot from him so mm-hmm. I would recommend you go there uh, to just read anything by Murray Rothbard. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm sure there's lots of links. I know you can find a lot of his material for free at the Mises Institute. Yeah, that's right. And um, so I'll I'll put links. I don't know. There's probably a website dedicated just to him, but I'll also put a link to the Mises Institute in today's show notes. And uh, again, Richard, I appreciate your time today, and it's, I've had a great time talking to you. Yeah, same here, Rachel. It's a lot of fun. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Okay. Talk to you later. All righty. I will. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. Show notes for today's episode can be found out at CannabisHillsMe.com slash, you guessed it, 100. Thank you so much to Richard Mayberry for coming on to talk to us about this very important subject. Y'all be sure to go check out his books at richardmayberry.com or you can always go out to Amazon and buy his books there. Just do a search for his name and the Uncle Eric series of books will pop up for you. Before we head out today, I want to give a shout out to our latest patron. She has asked to remain anonymous and I'll respect her wishes, but since she listens to every episode and shares them quite frequently, I still want to acknowledge her because I know she's going to be listening. She has been a tremendous supporter of this show and of me And she was actually one of the very first people that I told I was going to do a podcast. So, Miss Anonymous, thank you for your emotional support of me and this podcast. And we are honored by your financial support of the show as well. Now, none of the money we receive from our patrons benefits me personally. I plow it all back into the show for advertising and promotion so that we can get our message on the healing power of cannabis out to the masses. If you're interested in becoming a patron of this show and getting access to bonus material or other swag, go check us out at patreon.com slash chmpodcast. Thank you once again, everyone, for tuning in this week. Thank you for helping us get to 100 episodes. We really appreciate your continued support of the show. We'll be back here on Monday with yet another healing story. And here's to the next 100 episode. Thanks, guys. Hit the subscribe button, and you'll never miss an episode of the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. 
If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever podcast app you're using. Do you have a suggestion for a guest on Cannabis Heals Me? Send an email to podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Cannabis Heals Me or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments.